The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Amos, one of the minor prophets, as they're called and have been called throughout church history, that doesn't mean that their message is a minor one, or even that their ministries at the time that they were given were minor in comparison to major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It's merely a reference to the length of the biblical written book, and probably that all the 12 minor prophets were written on one scroll and, and came to be seen as a unit in that sense. Very important books, ones that you don't often hear preached, but we want to begin uh, a six-week series on Amos. I'd like to read verses 1 and 2, and I'm going to read throughout chapters 1 and 2 as we go through this sermon. Let's hear God's word at the beginning of Amos. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, What he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. Father, we pray for understanding as we consider your word tonight as we seek to apply these ancient words to us and to our lives. And as we think of your righteous judgments being revealed even in our day, help us to deeply humble ourselves before you and to seek the Lord. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amos is a prophetic book written to God's people in a time of prosperity. And yet, a time when they had deeply turned away from God and His Word. Even as the nation of Israel and Judah to some extent as well achieved new heights of economic and political and military achievement, the prophet Amos proclaims that God's judgment would soon come because the people refused to repent and they refused to seek the Lord and to bring forth the fruit of repentance in their lives. We don't know a lot about the prophet Amos. What we're told in verse 1 and a few other places in the book is all that we know. He was from this small town of Tekoa, as we read in verse 1, probably about 11 miles south of Jerusalem. So it wasn't far from Jerusalem, and so... Amos was from the southern nation of the two nations of the divided kingdom. He was from the southern nation of Judah, but his prophetic ministry was primarily to the northern nation of Israel. And we see from verse 1 when it took place during the reigns of Uzziah, who reigned for a long time, from about 792 
B.C. to about 750 B.C. and also during the reign of Jeroboam, who was Jeroboam the second, who reigned also about that same period of time. So Amos was sent to the northern nation of Israel and prophesied during the reigns of these two kings. Most scholars think the peak of his ministry was probably about 760 to 750 B.C. Now, if you know your history of Israel, you know that in 722 and 721 B.C., the nation of Israel is going to be destroyed and carried off into exile by Assyria. So he's prophesying 30 or 40 years before that terrible event and before the judgment of God fell upon them. Not a judgment without a future and a hope. But the nation didn't believe that judgment would come. The nation was glorying in their accomplishments and their economic prosperity. We also find out from verse 1 that Amos was a shepherd. And later in the book, we read that he also tended the sycamore fig tree. Sycamore fig was a type of fruit that only the the poorest of the poor tended to eat. So clearly he was not from the upper class of society. And he was not a priest in the temple ministering to the Lord in that sense. But Amos was a prophet raised up and called by God to announce this judgment on Israel and to call the people to repentance and true faith, but also to proclaim an ultimate glorious future hope that God would one day bring to pass. So we want to look at this book, clearly a book that has application to us today. And I hope that as we study the prophecy of Amos over the next two months, we will find that it challenges us and convicts us of sin in our lives and stirs up our hearts out of our tendencies that we find in the book of Isaiah, indicted by the prophet, that the people of God would not just go through the motions of religion, not just go through the outward ceremonies, but at the same time with their hearts becoming cold and dull toward the Lord and sinful in their relationships to others in their lives. And may the message of Amos pierce our hearts and show us our sin, and yet also bind up the brokenhearted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to look at this book then, and tonight we want to look especially at prophecies of chapters 1 and 2, which are oracles against the nations around Israel, and then judgments proclaimed on the nations of Judah and Israel themselves. Before I read chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, I want us to, to understand what's happening here. Amos, you might say a foreigner preaching to Israel from their kindred state of Judah, but you can imagine him in Bethel or in the cities of Israel preaching what is a message of judgment from God and how he might be received. And so it's interesting that what we see in chapter 1 begins with prophecies of judgment on nations surrounding Israel. There are six nations highlighted here surrounding Israel. And you can imagine Amos up on his soapbox preaching and him beginning to declare God's word. 
and beginning to declare judgments on the nations around him, like Damascus, which is Aram, or Philistia, or Phoenicia, or Edom. And you can hear the crowds assembling. Preach it, Amos. That message is a good one. Last Sunday night, it was somewhat disconcerting, I think, for all of us, because unless you're an unusual American, you probably found your heart just buoyed up and lifted up at the news of somebody being killed, Osama bin Laden being killed, which was a strange experience for me to think, why am I happy about that? I've, I don't know that I've ever rejoiced in someone's death before. But of course, we all can relate to why we felt that way. And so it's not surprising to think of the Israelites rejoicing to hear in God's judgments. But what we're going to see in our next point is then Amos then speaks to the sins of the nations of Judah to the south and Israel, the nation to which he is sent. And it's almost as if he set them up because he said, as he's preached about the nations, the surrounding nations' sin, and they all say their amen, what are they going to say when he addresses their sins? Do you see how that works? In other words, if you believe God's judgments are righteous and true and his word is true, for those around you, what about for you? And certainly that applies to us as well. It's easy to condemn and judge others or other nations and yet to be blind to our own sin. Let's briefly look then at the judgments on Israel's neighbors. I want to read these one by one and briefly speak to them. They're similar in style. And in fact, that style will carry over to the judgments on Judah and Israel as well. Let's look at verse 3. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire upon the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. So the nation of Aram or Damascus, the city, the is the first nation cited here by Amos. And notice that we see the the brutality in verse 3, at the end of that verse, because that, that nation threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. We don't know exactly what that refers to, but it must speak to some brutality in war. And in fact, as we look at all six of these, They're all what we might say are crimes against humanity. Very clear sins, not the kind of sins that you and I might think that we're doing in any way. But then when he comes to Judah and Israel, he gets to more covenantal sins against their God. The second category or nation is Philistia, verses 6 through 8. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. 
I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines is dead, says the sovereign Lord. Gaza was one of the five Philistine cities along the Mediterranean coastline, and Gaza guarded really the entry into Palestine from Egypt, the way that you would normally enter from the south. And we see what the major sin of Philistia was in verse 6, the second half of that verse, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. We're not sure what event this refers to. But instead of just taking warriors captive, Philistia, Gaza, took captive whole communities. Probably these were communities in southern Judah. Again, a form of humanitarian crime. Verses 9 and 10, we turn to the nation of Philistia. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. Now, Notice that refrain that we're seeing, I will send fire upon the walls, or I will send fire. Most likely, that is the fire associated with warfare. When a city is besieged and finally breached, and a fire is begun to burn down the wall or the city, that's what's being referred to, and that's what happened. This was all fulfilled with Assyria taking these nations and destroying them in a large way. The problem and the sin of Phoenicia was related to the, the sin of Philistia that they sold whole communities of captives to Edom. Phoenicia, Tyre, if you recall from the time in the reigns of David and Solomon, was a close ally of Israel. And we remember when the temple was built and there was trade going on in terms of the timber that was used. But here, there were humanitarian crimes again carried out, and Phoenicia is judged because of it. Then we come to Edom, in verses 11 and 12. This is what the Lord says. This refrain comes again and again. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion. Because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire upon Teman that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. So Edom is judged as well. And if you remember, Edom is constituted by the descendants of Esau. So in the reference in verse 11, about, about pursuing his brother with the sword, Jacob and Esau were twin brothers. And so for Edom, the descendants of Esau, to pursue Israel was essentially to pursue their brother. And so we might summarize their sin as, as persistent war or hostility toward Israel. And then number five, Ammon. In verses 13 to 15, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, 
because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. So the specific atrocity highlighted for Ammon is the one in verse 13 about ripping open the pregnant women of Gilead. And then the final surrounding nation that is judged is at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which is Moab. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he burned as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. So there, Moab is indicted for really desecrating the body of Edom's king. Now, as I earlier said, you can imagine the people of Israel hearing this and saying, yes, amen, these nations deserve it. And notice Notice the kinds of sins they are indicted for. The kinds of sins that, in a sense, there is this sense that uh, by conscience and, and the law of God to some degree written on all of our hearts, that God holds accountable all nations of the world, even that do not have his written law or his written word. These kinds of humanitarian crimes or atrocities. And so they were judged for that. But now, as it were, Amos turns his sights on the twin nations of Judah and Israel. Judah is the first one addressed here. Even though his ministry is not primarily to that nation, we see Judah addressed in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And as I read this, think of how different this proclamation is compared to what the other nations heard. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Very different, isn't it? Same form. And it would have been startling to a believer or a member of Judah or Israel to hear the same formula used in proclaiming judgment on God's covenantal people as on the nations surrounding them, the pagan nations surrounding them. But here we see that Judah is judged because they have broken God's covenant. Deuteronomy and the other books of the Bible describe the the prescriptions of God's covenant for his people. And if they break them, God will bring his curses upon them. And that's what Judah is being condemned for. These, These are breaking the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, being led astray by, it could be translated lies. They're being led astray by lies, by 
falsehoods from the nations around them or by false gods, depending on what the translation is there. And no doubt, a member of Israel would have taken these judgments as applying to them as well because they were God's covenant people as well. Judah then is indicted for her crimes as well. And after all of that, we come to the, in a sense, the climax of all of this, and Israel herself, to whom Amos had been sent, is judged. Let's hear what is said to Israel, beginning at verse 6. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and justice and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. Now, before we go on, let's just summarize. In verses 6 through 8, God specifies seven sins the nation is guilty of. And notice they all have to do with oppressing the poor, denying justice, profaning God's holy name by violating the word in some way. We're not going to specifically explain each one, but the first two are exemplary of this. They sell the righteous for silver. Probably it means righteous in the sense of someone who who had a debt but was paying his debt, and somehow they foreclosed on the debt just to get more money sooner. Or the parallel phrase, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Probably someone secured a small loan by giving their sandals to someone to, to secure it. Now, we look at loans like this or debt like that and think, really? But that's the kind of thing that they would do in that day, a very subsistence culture and society. But somehow, those more wealthy were oppressing the poor and the sandals being just a token of that. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. So Israel is judged here because they are corrupting justice. They are oppressing the poor. Deuteronomy 15 and other texts had specifically commanded that in the nation of Israel, the people were to care for the poor. And if somebody had need, they were to see to that need. They were to lend without interest. They were to give generously. But here the opposite is taking place. And the poor are being oppressed. And so by various ways, the people are violating God's law in terms of how they treat those around them, their neighbor and others in society. And so God condemns them by saying they profane my holy name. And not only that, but verses 9 and following show how God has graciously cared for Israel when they were oppressed. And those blessings add to Israel's guilt. I began to read in verse 9 the description of that. The Amorites were the 
the shorthand phrase for all the different people who dwelled in the promised land when Israel came in there. The Amorites were there, tall as the cedar, strong as the oat, and God destroyed his fruit above and his, ro- and his roots below. In other words, God destroyed the nations of the promised land so Israel could dwell there. And then verse 10 refers to the Exodus. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. And so God had blessed them richly. How had they responded? Well, here's another type of sin we find in verse 11 and 12. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. So here God's saying, I blessed you with prophets, Nazarites who were to be men specially dedicated to the Lord, examples of holy living, and what had they done? They had somehow coerced or tempted the Nazarites to break their solemn vow. A Nazarite, if you remember Samson, for example, who was one, they were not to have their hair cut. They were not to have strong drink. They would not be allowed to drink wine their whole lives. And here it says in verse 12, but they made the Nazarites drink wine. We don't know how they forced them to do this. But in other words, they're causing the Nazarites to violate their vow before God. And they commanded the prophets not prophesy. There are various incidents during the lives of King Ahab and others, for example, that this may be referring to. We just don't know what it refers to, but I think Amos is generally speaking to the nation saying, you have resisted God's word. You have commanded the prophets not to speak God's word. And then God's judgment is declared in verses 13 through the end of chapter 2. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Notice, the judgment is especially described in terms of the army. Israel prided itself at this time in its history in its mighty military force. And here we find that the fleet-footed, the archer, whatever strength they had was not going to be strong enough to escape the judgment of God. And it's described here in this, this analogy of a cart crushes when loaded with grain. It's, you just imagine this heavy cart, and if something got caught under the wooden wheel of that cart, you know, it would just be crushed. And God is saying, my judgments are going to crush you because you have rejected me and refused to hear. And so the judgment is going to be swift. It's going to be strong. None will stand. And as I said earlier, this was fulfilled in 722 when the Assyrian invasion took place. Let's try to make some applications to ourselves as we have seen this beginning of the book. And we'll see these themes repeated and we'll be able to think more of them in weeks to come. Three points of application for us. The first is this. To whatever degree our nation is guilty of sins, as God's people, 
we should repent of these sins. To whatever degree the nation in which we live has committed crimes and is guilty of sin, God's people should be on their knees repenting of our corporate sin. Daniel's a good example of this. Daniel was a very young man or a boy when he was taken captivity into Babylon. But there's a point in the book of Daniel when Daniel humbles himself before God and he prays and he confesses the nation's sin. And it's interesting that he confesses all the sins that had led up to the exile. Had Daniel been guilty or complicit in doing those sins? No, he was a man of God and he was just a young boy. It's like someone here confessing sins for the Reagan era who who was just two years old then. You wouldn't have to do that, would you? You're too young. But no, but there's a sense of the corporate identity and unity. And so this point of application, I think, is a very powerful one for us. We can look at the United States and other nations of the world and bemoan the sin that we see. And it is a grievous thing. But there is a sense in which we as God's people need to bear some responsibility for that. Because part of the problem and part of the reason why our nation is descending deeper and deeper into sin is because God's people are not being what God has called them to be as salt and light. And we need to pray, God, revive us again. And so when you think about the various kinds of sins that you see, and, and certainly some of these I hope that you know, we completely disagree with. We don't in any way agree with. We don't want these sins sins to take place, but there's a sense in which we should humble ourselves and say, Lord, forgive our nation. If God's people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You think of abortion. Talk about oppression and violence. Abortion is a terrible crime, and we know that. Or the increase in violent crime, murder, and rape in our society. Trafficking, even in the United States, of people in bondage in some way, of children and adults as well. I know this is more widespread in other parts of the world, but it happens here in the United States. Or just the, the widespread use of pornography and the abuse of alcohol and drugs, gambling, prostitution, all of these things. As God's people, we should grieve and repent over our nation's corporate sin. Recently, this week, we had the National Day of Prayer. And I hope there was a sense in which we all sought the Lord praying for our nation's well-being. But as God's people, we should especially be first and foremost in humbling ourselves before God. A second point of application is this. As God's people we should repent over the heart issues that eventually lead to scandalous sins. We should be repenting over the heart issues that eventually lead to scandalous sins. It's easy for us to see and condemn the obvious big sins that we see in our society, but what about the sins of our hearts? Notice when it comes to God's covenant People, what does Amos say to Judah in verses 4 and 5? He condemns them for rejecting the law of the Lord, not keeping his decrees, and because they've been led astray by 
And the word could be translated either false gods or lies. But both certainly have application to us. God's people need to search their hearts. And Amos is a very heart-searching book. Some of you who were around when Francis Schaeffer repeatedly spoke about the, the sin of seeking personal peace and affluence. It doesn't seem like a very bad sin. We might think to ourselves, well, I haven't done all these things that you mentioned in your first point, and, and I'm just going about my life trying to provide for my family. And God's word says to us and comes and says, even if you're not committing scandalous outward sins, if all your life consists of is wholly pursuing your own interests, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself. What about the interests of others? And there's this theme in Amos about not oppressing the poor and actually seeking to help the poor is what the positive application would be. So whatever, however that would take place, and there's no formula for that, but just it's a very heart-searching application to all of us. If we are walking with the Lord, how is it? What are the ways in which we are getting out of our comfort zone to some degree or which we are being involved in others' lives that somehow break the typical personal peace and affluence pattern of the West and show the fruit of a life given to God. I, I, we've been teaching a Sunday school class on George Whitfield in the Great Awakening, and one of the things that struck me in the description of the early Methodist religious societies, which were like small groups, and they became pretty large groups at times, and eventually they formed churches. But these religious societies had various rules and guides, guides and they were to be given over to fellowship and prayer, Bible study, and the distribution of literature in an evangelistic way. Maybe that's what our small groups try to do. I don't know how many of them do evangelism. But then it was interesting that in addition, all these religious societies were to also be given over to mercy ministry to the poor as well. Certainly more full orb than we could say most of our small groups are. Now, our church is seeking to do that in various ways. The ministry to the refugee family is one, or uh, maybe supporting adoption, families in our church that adopt. There are lots of ways. The Crispus Addis meal, there are a lot of these things, but not that these things are to be just fulfilled in a legalistic way. The book of Amos calls us to search our hearts. And certainly, the idea of seeking not to reject God's word but letting God's word deeply impact our hearts and minds and not being double-minded before God. Well, my third application is this, and I'll close with this. The searching judgments of God should remind us that we stand in Jesus Christ alone. Amos is a pretty serious book. It pronounces judgments that it's basically telling the nation You will not stand. God will judge you. This is, I'm not warning you anymore. This is going to take place. And in history, it did take place. But there was a future hope that we'll come to at the end of the book. But that hope ultimately was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's judgment being declared should remind us that before God, who can stand? We are sinners. 
And the only way of salvation is by the grace of God in Jesus Christ that convicts us of our sin, and yet it lifts us up through the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save us from our sin. Thanks be to God that this is the case. The pagan nations surrounding Israel were judged even by the limited light that they had. To whom much is given, much will be required. They hadn't been given much knowledge of God. The nation of Judah and Israel were more severely judged because they had greater light from God. They had the word of God. They were the covenant people of God. Well, think of you and me. We have even super greater light from God. We live in the light of Jesus coming in history. Well, thanks be to God that we're not simply judged by how well we live according to God's Word. No, every day I hope that you are living at the foot of the cross saying, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my only hope. When I offend in my relationship with the people I love the most, when I lose my temper, when I'm impatient, and in these areas of social sin as well, if I'm too absorbed in my own life, in my own pursuits, that I am in some way overlooking the poor that are around me somehow in my world, oh Lord, help me to return to the cross of Jesus Christ and open my eyes to these things and then empower me to carry them out more and more by the power of God. We can trust in a great Savior who was promised and who came. And Jesus Christ will produce the fruit of righteousness in you and in me. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for these clear, piercing judgments that were declared long ago and yet still speak to us today. We pray that you would give us hearts that are soft and malleable in your sight, that as we wrestle with the application of these words to our lives this week, that you would apply it to us and help us to seek you to repent and live through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask it in his name. Amen.